Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you this morning, and uh, it's 9.02, almost 9.03, so we better go ahead and get started. Um, but it's good to be here, and um, let's open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, you are uh, so good to us. Give us another day. Uh, give us another uh, chance to to live life, to be with one another. And, and Lord, I ask that you would bless our time and, and lead our thoughts, direct our minds as we look into your word. And, and may your spirit um, teach us, help us to be uh, ready to hear and to learn the things you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> some reason I'm not advancing my <laughs> my slides well um, we are going to be going into probably the battery well let me see if it'll work I think it's working now. Okay. We've gone into a new um, section that Mike started last week called Obedience and Disobedience. And uh, we're looking at really God working through people and how people conformed to his work at times and how people resisted his work at times. And uh, we're in the seven seas of history uh, we're in the one that's in the middle called chaos, which is pretty much how my mind is right now after having studied this material <laughs> for today. Uh, that describes me pretty well. Uh, today we're, we're looking at Rahab, how God used Rahab. And, um, and really what we're going to be looking at are some ethical questions that come up with Rahab. This is a way of review. Uh, we've studied Genesis from the creation of the universe, the earth and all the creatures, including mankind. And now uh, to the exodus of the Israelite slaves. Um, we've looked at how they failed to trust God and to in, in going into the promised land. And so they had to wander 40 years in the wilderness waiting uh, for that time. God had said that no one from the age 20 and up would go into the land with the exception of two men. Uh, that would have, was Joshua and Caleb. <coughs> when Moses died, the, ma the mantle of leadership passed to Joshua. And today we'll be looking at stage two of God's fulfillment of his promise to give this land to his people. Stage one was the preparation of the people. God had to prepare the people to get them ready to go into the land. So let's look at Joshua chapter 2. We're going to read the account. Um, and, uh, and then uh, look at some of the elements of it. Joshua. <clears throat> 
Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Then Joshua the son of Nun sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot named, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. It was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, the men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. <coughs> but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. It came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan to the fords, and as soon as those who were out, who were pursuing them had gone out, she, they shut the gate. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my sisters and my brothers with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So the men said to her, Our life for yours, if you do not tell this business of ours, and it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall, so that, that she was living on the wall. She said to them, Go to the hill country, so that the pursuers will not happen upon you, and hide yourselves there for three days until the pursuers return. Then afterward you may go on your way. The men said to her, We shall be free from this oath to you, which you have made a swear unless when we come into the land you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down and gather to yourself into the fa into the house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household it shall come about to anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be free but anyone who is with you in the house his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him but if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be free from the oath which, we have which you have made us swear. She said, According to your words, so be it. So she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Now let's look over in Joshua chapter 6, verse 22. <clears throat> says, Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land. This is after Jericho, or when Jericho is about to, be, to fall. Uh, Go into the harlot's house and bring the woman and all she has, has out of there. 
as you have sworn to her. So the young men who were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all that she had. They also brought out all her relatives and placed them outside the camp of Israel. They burned the city with fire and all that was in it. Only the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. However, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all she had, Joshua spared. And she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day, for she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So that's the story. We, what we have is um, the spies being sent to, to, to uh, survey the land around uh, and, and really to enable Joshua and his leaders to, to make plans for the invasion. And as part of that, Joshua explicitly said, check out Jericho. So they did. And, and what we find in the story is in coming into the city, the two spies um, went into uh, the place where information was readily available. Usually it was a, a, um, uh, a bar or a, uh, a uh, house of, of uh, a brothel. Uh, that's where people tended to gather. And in, in those days, it's very common in, in the ancient world that a hotel and a brothel were kind of a mixed business um, where, um, you know, people who traveled would stay there and, um, and in order to make extra money, they, you know, had added um, benefits that you could pay for. And so that's, that's kind of the way the business was. So uh, they're there and uh, someone in the city sees them who is of an official nature and lets the king know. The king then um, sends people to go and, and arrest those men. And But Rahab has hidden them, and then she lies for them, and, uh, and on they go. We find in this story, um, at least I see them, three moral quandaries, quandaries or ethical quandaries. Um, the first one that, that uh, we want to look at today is, was Rahab's lie a sin? Uh, the second one is, is it okay for a good Jewish boy to marry a Gentile and or a prostitute? Um, and the third one is, does moral wreckage reconcile, or how does moral wreckage reconcile with God's holiness? And if you think uh, the term moral wreckage is a little bit harsh, you haven't heard my confessions yet. Um, and we don't have time for that, not today or any day. <laughs> um, and, and I don't feel like making a PowerPoint either. So, um, but, but really, that is kind of uh, what the picture is about. And uh, as we will get down to the end, um, I, I think it's pretty easy for us to see ourselves um, a whole lot in, in this uh, lady, Rahab. So we begin with this. Was Rahab's lie a sin? There basically are two views. Yes and no. So I hope that answers the question for you. Um, 
First of all, let's look at what sin is. Um, from uh, Grudem's uh, theology book, he says, any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Um, A.H. Strong and his theology, his systematic theology, has pretty much the same uh, definition. And so that's what we're looking at. Any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Sin is something that uh, we should be sorry for when we commit it. Uh, we have violated God. Um, it's something that we repent of. And it's something that, that after we have seen it in its, its real light, um, we wish we had done otherwise. And uh, that's what sin is. So, um, there are those, we're going to first deal with those who um, say that, it, that, yes, it was a sin. And there are, are kind of two, two camps with this. One of them is, this one isn't around much. But it has been in existence and has played a, a curious part in history. Um, that, yes, um, she, what she did was sin, and she should definitely not have done it. That, um, in fact, um, it was a great violation. One of the, the people who would take this, this point of view in history was King James. King James uh, was uh, made king at the end of 1602. And by the middle of, or a few months into 1603, probably late summer, uh, was having a, a meeting with the leaders of the, the organized church in England. Um, and what they were trying to do is kind of settle some things that had been going on. The, the, um, there had been some great, in, in England, through the 1500s, from the time King Henry VIII um, uh, went away from the, from the Catholic Church and established his own Church of England. Um, from, from that time forward, there's, there's these great movements, shifts back and forth. And uh, you have the Puritans that rise up. And so in this, this uh, meeting that King James had, the first part of the meeting was with uh, the bishops of, of the uh, Anglican Church. And then he had uh, a second meeting um, in a couple days later with uh, these, these uh, Puritans. And the Puritans were always trying to push the Reformation further in, a, the, in the Church of England, wanting to see more and more reforms and so on, and um, and one of the things that they proposed was a translation of the Bible, an English translation of the Bible that would be used by everyone. And uh, one of the the translations that was already around at that time was the Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible was generally regarded as the best English translation at that time, but was not accepted by everyone in the in the English church. And so, but they were, this was their way of kind of trying to push the king, hoping that he would be receptive to the Geneva Bible. His response, however, is really interesting. 
His response to, uh, to their request was, yeah, we do need one translation. But the worst one that exists right now is the Geneva Bible. And he went on to explain one of his biggest issues with this Geneva Bible was that um, it had uh, center um, or it had marginal references and, and comments. It had commentary that went with it. And so in this commentary, he referred to Exodus 1, where the midwives were commanded by Pharaoh to, um, to kill the baby boys and they disobeyed. And the commentary in the Geneva Bible was that um, they, they're in their lie, their deception to Pharaoh, that, they were, that their disobedience was lawful, but their disobedience was still evil. So that it was, it was wrong to lie, but it was still lawful to do. Now, King James believed in the divine right of kings. That the king had the primary authority. God had given God gives to a king that authority, and it's absolute. That was what he believed, and so so he took great exception with it and demanded that if a translation is done, there would be no um, uh, commentary at all with it, because he took that view, and so uh, this this kind of view. Um, is, is one of the, I mean, G- King James would be one of those people who would say that, yes, her lie was a sin, and she definitely should not have done it. There are others who actually take a more biblical view, uh, who um, also say that, that lying is a sin, it's always a sin, and what she did, there was a sin. Um, John MacArthur, in the, in the study Bible, uh, he says, lying is a sin to God. For he cannot lie. God commended her faith, but not her lie. He never condones any sin, yet none are without sin, some sin, needing forgiveness. And this view is probably, from, from what I can tell, um, with doing, doing the research I did, was, is probably the majority view. It was the view of Augustine. Uh, it was the view of Calvin. Um, and it's been the, the, the view of many others since. And if you were to, um, I did this this morning just because it, it only occurred to me this morning to do it. But went on, my, um, went on Google and asked the question, is, did Rahab sin when she lied? And by the way, it pops up before you even finish you know, keying it in. Um, I'm not the first one to ask that question. And uh, there are some, some actually some pretty good articles on there to read on this subject. I would encourage you to go to it. So, uh, but anyway, a lot of them will take a, a view very, very much like this. Um, and there are good, good, solid people, good people who take this view. And, um, and you know, if you're ever going to disagree with John MacArthur, you better bring your lunch, right? He's, he's, he knows what he's talking about. I don't do it. Uh, lately, and uh, so um, I think it's it's something that really needs to be to be wrestled with. Um, that, that God commended her faith. I'm just I have a little difficulty though separating out her action from from her faith, as I will explain in a little bit. 
Um, Ephesians chapter 4, and the Bible is, has a lot of verses um, on lying and how destructive it is, how, how it is evil, how it is a sin. Um, there are verses about liars being cast into hell. Um, and so um, we do take the truth and, and falsehood, we take it seriously, as we should. The Bible takes it seriously. Um, Ephesians 4.25 is, is just an example of how we are to relate with one another. And so it says, Each one of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. And so if we're going to have a relationship, a relationship has to be founded on truth. Truth is something that we need. And, and a relationship doesn't work if it's not founded on the truth. Um, and so that's, it, it has to be that way. And, and there are some examples um, that of, of what falsehood is. Um, deceit is, is um, hiding or covering up the truth or creating a dishonest impression. Uh, exaggeration is embellishing or stretching the truth or using the words never and always. These are ways that we lie. Um, evasion is another one. Not really answering the question or changing the subject. Um, these are very dangerous. In, in relationships amongst a, a group of people like this, it's highly dangerous in a marriage relationship um, where the truth is something we depend upon with each other. Disguised messages. Um, hoping the other person will get the message by making a comment that's maybe about someone else and trying to indirectly import that upon upon um, this person we're talking to. Uh, conflicting messages, saying one thing, but the tone of, of our voice or our body language says another. And the person that we're talking to um, is not really sure what we're saying. It's meant to create uncertainty with the other person. So there are, are many ways of lying. And uh, what Paul, in writing to the church in Ephesus, is, is saying is that what we need to do is put it off and speak truthfully to each other, that our relationships depend upon that. Uh, furthermore, we know that not only does lying do great damage to a relationship that it usually destroys the person who is who's speaking the lie it's destructive to the liar um, every time we lie um, we lose a part of our soul in a way there, there, there's something that chips away at our character at the person of, of who we are and lying is destructive and so for for great reason, God condemns it. God wants us to walk in the truth. Jesus himself declared, Jesus declared himself to be the truth. God is about the truth. And God is one who cannot lie. Um, and, and we depend upon that fact that God does not lie. And so uh, uh, the truth is very important. But moving on to the other side, um, 
it says this, that no, her lie was not a sin because the truth is due only to those who are worthy of it. And so then there are people who, who take this point of view. I would, uh, this, this uh, statement actually, uh, listen, uh, I got this from R.C. Sproul several years ago, who was talking about um, Rahab and, and, and uh, using her in a, as an example that, uh, that the truth is something um, that in certain occasions um, creates damage. And so therefore, we have to be careful with it. Um, other people who would support this, Luther was one. Um, and so uh, would be Bonhoeffer. And so if you read uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book on ethics, the very last chapter is a chapter called Truthfulness. I'd encourage you to read it um, uh, just for the expansion of your mind. It's difficult reading. One, because it's uh, translated from German, but two, it was written before 1950, and for some reason they used more complex sentences back then. Um, I had that same problem with C.S. Lewis. I have to read his stuff over and over again before I finally get it. However, um, the, the concepts are pretty interesting. And, he, and Bonhoeffer raises some issues um, in there that make you realize that, that truth actually, one of the thing, issues he raises is that truth can actually be used as a weapon. And in so doing, we become the, the um, instrument of Satan rather than of God. And so there are, are um, ways of, of, of really what we're supposed to do is, is grow in wisdom. And, and so that is the idea here. Um, one of the examples in, in Scripture, of course, is the midwives that we've already talked about. And when you really think about it, Rahab's lie was actually part of a bigger crime. That crime is treason. That's what she was committing, was treason. Um, and consider, there, I think there's some things to consider with Rahab as we look at this situation. One of the things to consider is her alternative. What's her alternative? Well, her alternative is to turn them in, right? To have them be arrested. That's her alternative, which leads to um, that she is killed along with everyone else in the city. So her, her family is not saved. Uh, that's, that's her alternative. She could have used the Jedi mind trick. You know, waved her hand and said, these droids are not the ones you're looking for. You know, and, and they look at each other and said, oh, these droids are not the ones we are looking for. And they walk out. That's still a lie, isn't it? Um, so, so that doesn't really solve the issue. Um, we also should consider this. Rahab had a righteous reaction to the terror that was coming. Exodus 23, 27, God tells Moses that he's going to send his terror ahead of them upon the people. And that is exactly what has happened. And so when Rahab is describing to these two men 
what she is feeling, what she, is, she describes, is the terror of the people coming to them. And her reaction to this terror is a righteous one. It's, it's one of saying, of saying, I don't want to be killed, and I actually want to go to your side. I want to go to your side. Think about, too, and this is probably going to be coming up next in the next lesson because we're looking at actually Jericho being uh, being taken over. But Jericho had a whole week of the Israelites marching around their city. Seven days. Why didn't they send out a delegation, you know, with a white flag and come out and, and say, you know, what can we do here? How can, how can we negotiate this? There, there wasn't that. That wasn't given to them. In fact, it was God's plan to destroy that city and all of its occupants. But Rahab's reaction to the terror was a righteous one. I want to change. I want to, to, um, to, I want to come over to your side. You see, she exercised a choice in wartime. And this is significant to the issue. This is wartime. And so considering that, in wartime, does that mitigate her dealings in this issue? Somewhat, I believe. So she exercised the choice. Another thing to consider is that wisdom chooses carefully its loyalties. If you look at any list of virtues, you'll find loyalty on that list. That loyalty is a virtue. Yet, she committed treason. She violated loyalty. And wisdom actually will drive us to choose those loyalties carefully. You probably all know people who have been stuck in their loyalty and continue to make poor decisions in their relationships. And uh, loyalty is something that needs to be guided by wisdom. One of my favorite quotes by R.C. Sproul is that iniquity is virtue run amok. And that's, this is a good example of that. And what Rahab did was chose. She made a choice as to which side she's going to be on. She chose the side of God, the side of godliness. And so uh, this, this is another item to consider. <coughs> However, uh, if, if you're anything like me, when, who I tend to be a, somewhat of a black and white person, like to have things set in, in place. And so the thing that jumps out to me is, what about the guardrails? That's the question I ask. What about the guardrails? If there are exceptions to this, um, if this is not purely a black and white issue, what will keep us from losing control? And if you're a parent, you know, you're teaching your children values and so on, it's, that's, that's a, a very important issue. Um, and, and so what about the guardrails? I would submit this, um, that it, it maybe ask it in a question. Is the day of judgment 
too slight a restraint for us. See, what God is over and over again, even with, with all of his laws, he's not trying to get us to focus on his laws. He, his, our focus is to be on him. And our responsibility to him, our relationship with him, and someday our accountability before him. Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, Jesus said, every idle word will be judged. So if we're making decisions about our speech, about what we are going to say, uh, we need to make it make those decisions in light of the fact that I'm going to answer for this. I'm going to stand before God and give an account that needs to impact my, my language, what I say, the position I take. And it is a very thorough judgment. Um, this judgment isn't to be taken lightly. Jesus described himself in the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25 as a judge who is so thorough that he's like a farmer who harvests outside of the planting zone, goes past the planting zone into the edges to make sure nothing is missed. Very thorough. If every idle word is judged, if, if it goes down to that level, um, then I will have to give an account for those words. And so the guardrail is not just a, a black and white um, law that I have, but it's the idea that I will stand before God and give an account. I must comport myself wisely. I need to, to uh, do what he wants me to do. And so uh, that is um, one of the things that, that we have to look at. Our respect for God's law must be accompanied by wisdom of application. Jesus dealt with this with the Sabbath day. And so you, if you remember, you know, he healed on the Sabbath. He was um, accused of, of breaking the Sabbath when his disciples were stripping the, the wheat off, of, off the stalk and eating of it. And his, Jesus' comment was, don't you know that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It, it is a way of viewing the law. It, it, it's, a, it's a perspective that Jesus was trying to turn their head with. There, so there is the, um, the Sabbath challenges. There's what Paul wrote in Galatians. Because the laws can become such a heavy thing. And what Paul was writing was, you need to walk in the Spirit. This is what we need to do. We need to learn to walk in the spirit and be led by the spirit. And so uh, that is something that we, that we take into mind as we look at this. And, and, and actually, we're going to see it underneath um, these, this next um, issue. How can this marriage be allowed? Rahab went on to marry a man by the name of Solomon. Solomon was, as I saw described in one, one thing I read, a prince of the tribe of Judah. His father, Nashon, was uh, the principal leader of the tribe as they were going into the land. Solomon, his son, is the one who marries Rahab. And 
how can this be allowed? When we look in, in Exodus 34, 16, and then in Deuteronomy 7, 3, which I have up there, it says this. You shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. The they and the their, the them, I should say, are the, are the Canaanite people, the people they will encounter in this land. In the very first stop, which is Jericho, comes out Rahab and she marries a prominent young man in, in the tribe of Judah. How can this be allowed? Not to mention that she's in the hospitality business. Um, you don't get that, do you? Oh, okay. It's just not funny. Okay. okay. Um, so, so, um, so how can this be? The laws of God have a purpose. And we are to look beyond the letter of the law. God's concern with intermarriage was with the potential for idolatry, not with ethnic purity. And that's an important part of, of, of understanding that law. And so when God gave the law, he also gave them the purpose. So in Deuteronomy 7, 4, that's what he explains. And when he gave his laws, he almost always gave purpose behind it. Because he, he wasn't a God who, who would, you know, just gave out some rules and said, and, and you do this because I said so. He wasn't a just because I said so kind of, of leader or deity. No, God always gave purpose. And he, he expects men and women to think, to be thinking people and to comport their lives in a way that understands the purpose of the law. When Jesus challenged uh, the understanding of the law in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it, it was always their misunderstanding that he was challenging because they didn't understand the purpose, the point of it all. The third one, which this is, I, I think, maybe my favorite point here and, and one I, I really wanted to spend the most time on I don't know if I will, but uh, how can Rahab be brought into the covenant province bestowed upon Israel? Rahab is a Gentile. She's a harlot. Um, that's, that's her background. How is it that a person like her could be brought into that covenant province it's given to Israel well the same same way Israel received it by grace I mean it's by grace that Israel was chosen it's by grace that Israel was brought into this covenant relationship with God God could have picked instead of Abraham the most righteous man on the earth who was Job. But he chose Abraham who came out of idolatry and chose Abraham to go down and be the, the heir of the promise. It's all by grace. 
You know, the most impressive Christians and usually the most happy Christians are those who know how much they have been forgiven. And one of the biggest dangers that the children we raise in church face is not knowing how much they've been forgiven and not really facing up to their own sinfulness, their own sinful attitudes. That is something that every human being needs to face if they're going to follow after Christ. That every single one of us is a person who, um, who needs the grace of God. If you um, were to go to Ezekiel chapter 16, <coughs> read the first six, first six verses, Ezekiel 16. I'm not asking you to go there right now, but um, you get a very graphic account, a description that God gives of what he saw when he chose Israel. And what he saw wasn't pretty. I remember the very first time I read that, that passage, getting this sense of, wow, what did God see when he saw me? And that is really probably supposed to be our right reaction. That's the reason why God gave that to Ezekiel. And it is by grace that he were chosen. You know, at this time of going into land, Israel is is actually in a pretty good place. You know, they've kind of gotten a lot of stuff straightened out. Culturally, they've come together. Uh, they've gone through this 40 years of wilderness. The, a lot of the resistance has all died away. And, and as you read the account of, of the book of Joshua, and as they go into the land, they take the land, you see a lot of righteous um, action and activity um, it, it, it's really good. Yes, they still made some mistakes, but for the most part, they were doing really well. They're in a good place spiritually. And so when they come into the land, to Jericho, they look pretty good. Uh, they're pretty cleaned up. But let's not forget where they came from and all that, they, all that it took to get them to that point. And it's the same way with us. You know, we, we, we can get here and we look pretty cleaned up, right? But let's not forget where we came from, no matter who we are. Uh, one of the most famous parables that Jesus told was about rule keepers and rule breakers. You can read it in Luke 15. Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees spending time with enjoying the company of and eating with publicans and sinners you know the same political parties we have today um, Jesus response to to their their questioning was to to give three stories you have the the man with a uh, hundred sheep one is lost and that there's great rejoicing when he finds that sheep and, and uh, then there's the one with the 10 coins. One is lost and she cleans her whole house to find that one coin. And there's great rejoicing when she finds it. And how, 
Jesus says there is great rejoicing in heaven when one sinner comes to repentance. And his third story is about two sons. I'm not going to tell the whole story. You're familiar with it. And I would encourage you to, um, if you have not ever done this, to get MacArthur's book, The Tale of Two Sons. Or you can listen to his series of sermons online. Um, it it gives you a great perspective. I really encourage you to do it. it. It's very helpful. It's very helpful to me. The point of what MacArthur brings out is at the end of the story, you have this, the, the lost son who represents the publicans and sinners who is brought into a great celebration they killed the fatted calf, you know, it's, and, and he goes outside, and the other son, who's angry, doesn't understand it. He, this son, the one who stayed home and did all the good stuff, obeyed the rules, he represents the Pharisees. The father, who represents Jesus in this parable, goes out to this older son, trying to talk him into coming into the celebration. MacArthur's point in in the story is it's that older son representing the Pharisees who, if you were to continue the story to how it actually happened in real life, in his resentment for all of this celebration for his wayward brother, picks up a club and beats his father to death. That's what the rule keeper does. Because it was the Pharisees who conspired to have Jesus killed, who said, crucify him at the trial. It was the rule keepers who went off the beam and did the horrible, most horrible thing of committing murder. And for us, some of us are out-and-out rule breakers. We have that in our past. Some of us are out-and-out rule keepers, and we're so meticulous about everything. But understand that deep within our core, every one of us is a, is a wickedness and evil that, we, that all need to have forgiven. We all need the grace of God equally, and we all need to understand who we are. And if we're going to understand Rahab and her being brought into this, um, we need to look at ourselves and see who we are. Okay, an application. By faith, Rahab chose against her own people and culture to embrace the God of Israel. I put that word in there, culture, on purpose. You know, culture is such a hang-up for people. Culture is so overrated in its importance, but, man, it is something that people will hold on to forever. And culture is something that, that we should understand It will is resistant to the claims of Christ. The only culture that matters, really, is the culture of Christ. Everything else needs to be messed with. 
in, in China in the early 1900s was the Boxer Rebellion. You know what the Boxer Rebellion was about? The Christianity was changing the culture. To protect the culture, they killed the Christians. Almost completely wiped them out in China. Um, all for the culture. And anyone who says that, you know, when we take the gospel to another country, you don't need to change the culture. We just need to give them Jesus. You know what? Jesus always messes with the culture because the culture always comes from our corruption and their culture needs to be messed with. And doesn't our culture need to be messed with some? Um, you drive around, you look at, it, at what we have. Yeah, our culture needs to be messed with by Christ. Uh, we need to have that. Rahab was choosing against her own people and her own culture to embrace the God of Israel. Look at Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 31 says, By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. She made a choice to um, embrace something new, to go a different direction. She was making a choice in wartime, yes. She was making a choice for, not just against what she was, but for this God, the, the one who, from whom the terror of, of that God was spreading through the land. But for her, it was a ray of hope. And so she was choosing uh, something new, something better, for herself. By faith, Rahab protected the spies and sent them on their way. Look at James chapter 2. James, in making the argument that faith without works is dead, uses Rahab's action <coughs> to as an example. He says, In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For me, I can't separate the, the, the lie that she told from the works. Others can. Um, I'm not going to tell you what to think on that issue. Um, there's good people on both sides of that. But I would say this, that she took action that her faith produced action, and she then was um, she was saved, and her whole family, they were saved. Um, so that was the position she took. There was a question. That's, that's a good question, and in fact, um, that is something that does get addressed by Bonhoeffer. You could, could also read, um, oh, yeah, I, I, the, the guy sketched, the Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer um, gives, uh, I was reading him a little bit yesterday, and especially this, this section, in, it's called The Christian Manifesto is the book. 
and uh, he has a section on there on, on how Christians relate to civil government, civil authority, and that, that whole thing. And um, very provocative and, and a good a good resource for, for um, kind of banging through the issue. Um, yeah, she, I mean, she went against her, her city, her government. She, you know, that's, she chose a different path. Some would call it, call it treason. The people of Israel called her a hero. And they accepted her that way. That's how they viewed her. And so um, she chose that what she ended up doing was choosing God. Because of her faith, um, Rahab was the instrument for saving her family. Because of her faith, she was enveloped into a new nation. And then she was married to the son of a prominent family. By faith, she became the mother of Boaz. And it's been a few months ago, but Pastor Carlos did that uh, wonderful series through the book of Ruth, and we became acquainted a little bit more with who Boaz was. Um, But what an amazing story. Uh, She became the second mother-in-law to Ruth. That just blows my mind, thinking about the relationship. There's got to be a Hallmark movie here somewhere. In this. Um, this is so cool, the, the interactions. And, and what did the community around them think? They settled in Bethlehem, a small village. But this had to have reached out to a lot more people as they come in and settle down. You know, what was that like? Uh, I, I, I thought about that a lot yesterday. You know, what was that like settling into that village after they had conquered the land and and Solomon comes back home from war, and and uh, he marries Rahab, and, and you know they settle down in, in Bethlehem, and and uh, what is that like? Then they have Boaz as a child, um, Bo- and raise Boaz, and, and look what kind of man Boaz was, as, as Pastor Carlos described his his character, his his qualities. She raised him to be a generous, thoughtful man. Um, very observant of the law um, was Boaz, as is demonstrated in the book of Ruth. So, um, so that's the kind that has to speak a little bit, at least, to hers as a parent, as his mother. Um, she became the great great grandmother to David, the the esteemed king, probably the the most famous king in history um, and is included prominently in the ancestry of the Messiah. Um, what an amazing story. And, you know, it, I, I kind of cringe every time I read, you know, her name when it calls her the harlot, Rahab the harlot. That's how she's known, Rahab the harlot. And, um, you know, I, I want it to be, I don't know, I just don't want her to have that for her last name. But uh, the reminder is really not of her past, but of God's grace. And it's a reminder to us. 
it's, it's actually meant to tell us something. To tell us how much God cares about us. And how much, how generous God is with his grace. So let's close with this. And look at it this way. We are Rahab. We start outside of the covenant with God. We're enslaved to the systems of man. Then awakened to a deliverance by God. Given a new family with a glorious destiny. See, see, we have this connection, this great connection with Rahab's story. Um, there are a lot of people who, when they come to faith, they have to leave a lot behind. It wasn't that way for me. I, my parents were, were Christian. Um, I literally went to church from the, from the cradle, from the first week. Um, and that's what I grew up with. But I've known people, and I'm sure, and maybe even some of you here, when you became a Christian, um, it actually pushed you out of everything that you were comfortable with. Maybe you were disowned by your family. There are a lot of people who go through that. Um, that that what you experience is is a dramatic and drastic change, and yet it's brought to something good, something deep, and something rich because it's with the creator God, the one who made us, the God of heaven and earth. And he's the one who adopts us into his family, calls us his child, and gives us an amazing destiny. And this is why when John Newton wrote his song about grace, he called it amazing. God would let us know that we needed help and would draw us into his family. This is the story of Rahab. This is, in many ways, our story too. All right, let's pray. Holy Father, I thank you so much for your grace, for your mercy, your kindness to us. And not just leaving us where we were, but reaching into our lives. Even as you did with Rahab, Awakening within her the, the, the sense of, of responding in a righteous way to the terror of the Lord. And Lord, you have brought us to a place of faith. Just like you did her. And may we not take it for granted, but may we uh, be filled and even drenched with the richness of it of your grace as it pours upon us. Thank you so much for it. And may, may our thoughts and our focus and even our worship today be enriched because of, of how we view what you have done for us. Amen.